what a privilege it has been to spend this weekend together with you, or with some of you at least. What a day we had yesterday. You know, I'm, I'm from Sweden. I haven't seen the sun in six months. <laughs> and we had this beautiful day. No wonder you're getting red in, your, in the face. Uh, wow. I was out making friends all day, falling in love with your city. It was definitely worth it, so thank you. And what a privilege it is to know that as a church, you pray for our work in Sweden. I've, I've already have a, had a number of conversations, people uh, approaching me saying, hey, we're praying for you. Wow, what a privilege that is. We minister in a country where the harvest is truly great and workers are extremely few. Uh, and there's a great strength and comfort uh, that there are like-minded brothers and sisters in a healthy church who is faithfully partnering with us in that, church, in that work. And for our family, your support is extremely valuable. So thank you for all that you do. And thank you for the privilege of sharing God's word with you today. Uh, back home in, in our church in Sweden, uh, I'm working through the book of Ephesians. I like to preach slowly, like one verse or two verses at a time. I think I've given 48 sermons, and the next Sunday sermon will be from Ephesians 4.16, God willing. Uh, but I, I do believe, I'm not sure, but I do believe that I speak for the whole church when, when, when I say it's been fantastic <laughs> to take the time to slowly work through this marvelous uh, letter, examine each verse and, and contemplate what it means for us today. So... I would like to read a few verses from the letter to uh, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians three. Uh, the, the sermon will be on verse nineteen. Um, so, at the same time, I, I'll, I'm preaching on this verse. I, will, I hope you get a sense of how it comes across as I expand the text back home in Sweden. Uh, I do feel very limited by the language, so please pray for me uh, that the message may flow as I speak. So if you have a Bible, let's open it and read from uh, the letter to Ephesians, chapter 3. Uh, again, the sermon will be on verse 19. Uh, I will read the whole, the whole um, paragraph there. It's on page 977 in the Pew Bibles. Ephesians 3, and I'll read from verse 14. The Apostle Paul. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a sweet text this is. Paul prays that these Christians may know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. That's verse 19. So that 
in order that, it's a tiny little Greek word, it's called hina, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. All the fullness of God. When you hear this, you wonder, did I hear it correctly? Did he just say that we may be filled with all the fullness of God? All of it? Are we even allowed to pray like that? Is that even possible? God is big. <laughs> and we're getting filled with... It sounds grandiose. It sounds fantastic. But what is he talking about? Paul, he uses such strong language. It boggles the mind. How can all of God's fullness abide in us? Is it some kind of special experience that Paul is talking about here? Is it something else? What is it? Whatever it is, I want to encourage you to allow yourself this moment to feel the weight of the strong wording in this passage. There's something here that's unfathomably marvelous, which Paul seems to mean is attainable for the church at Ephesus and therefore is attainable for us. It speaks of a spiritual reality that is unsurpassably unsurpassable in its sublimity. In, in the first three chapters of uh, Ephesians, Paul has showed us this most astonishing landscape, spectacular heights. And right here in the conclusion of the third chapter, right before he changes gear he, and, and he turns into a more practical approach, right here he brings us to the pinnacle of, of it all. And he speaks about God's fullness and how that is available for us. It's staggering, friends. It's unfathomable. And before we look closer at the text, I want you to notice that this is also the pinnacle of the prayer that Paul has been praying since verse 16. The passage begins in, in verse 14. He starts to connecting by connecting to something he has said before. And he says, therefore, that is for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And then he continues in verse 15. He interjects something explanatory about the Father to whom he's praying. And then in verse 16, he says what he's praying for. Namely that God the Father, according to all the riches of his glory, may grant us to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in our inner being. All right? Then he ties this to the next verse. And, and yet again, he uses this little Greek word. So that, and then he moves on to the next level. So Paul prays that the church will receive something, they will, that they will re receive power, uh, strength in their inner beings, but he doesn't pray that as an end in itself, but so that something else might happen, namely, so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. So the first petition leads to the second. He prays for power that leads uh, to Christ through faith dwelling in their hearts and, and that they be rooted and grounded in, in love. So that's great. That's fantastic. That's beautiful. I preached like two or three sermons on that. It's awesome. Uh, but he doesn't stop there either. Because then we have the next connective words. He pray that they should be rooted and grounded in love so that they, together with all the saints, can comprehend the breadth 
the length, the height, and the depth, and know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So everything Paul has prayed for thus far, for power and strength, that Christ should dwell in their hearts and that they should be rooted and grounded in love, all this aims towards they comprehending the love that is incomprehensible. That they should get to know the love of Christ. And then he continues. He prays that they should get to know the unsurpassable love of Christ so that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, all these things build one on top of the other in a progression so that when we reach this second part of verse 19, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God, this is the pinnacle of what, God prays, uh, of what, what Paul prays in verses 14 through 19. This is the goal. This is the climax. This is the apex of the mountain that is the Christian life. It is higher than knowing the love of God that surpasses knowledge. Paul prays that we should know the love that surpasses knowledge so that we may be filled with all of God's fullness. Try to take this in, friends. Jesus Christ, eternal God, takes his dwelling in our heart. That's fantastic. To be rooted in love, that's amazing. God's love is the soil out of which we draw our lives as Christian, diving deep into the love of Christ and knowing its deepest dimensions beyond all knowledge. That's indescribably grand. But it leads to, to something further, namely being filled with all the fullness of God. And then Paul explodes in this doxology in the final verses of the chapter. It's like he cannot help himself. He, he bursts out in, in worship, praising God for his power to do all, to do far more than all we can ask or think. So now let's ponder what Paul means when he says that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. It sounds fantastic. All right. What does it mean? And friends, I don't want to raise any false hopes here. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I won't be able to give you an, an exhaustive explanation of what this is uh, because I simply don't know. Uh, I would like to share with you, however, a couple of clues that hopefully can shed a little light on this and, and point us in the right direction. So that's where I'm going with the rest of this sermon. Two clues, two points, if you will, to cast light of what it means to be filled with all God's fullness. All right, point number one, temple terminology. Temple terminology. I want to show you how this connects to Paul's reasonings uh, that begins in the, second, in, in the middle of the second chapter. So in chapter 2 of Ephesians, uh, and from verse 11 onward, he speaks in terms related to the temple. When he speaks about the new unity that in Christ that God has established between Jew and Gentile, uh, he notes that the Gentiles were excluded without hope, without God in the world. This is verse 11, isn't it? Uh, I'm using this pew Bible, so I can't find my way in it, so you, you'll find it. Um, and, and, but through the blood, 
of Christ, we can now draw near, both Jew and Gentile. Christ has broken down the dividing wall, he says, which is in a, that's an allusion to a real wall, a real physical wall, that wall that hindered the Gentiles from access to the temple in Jerusalem. Paul is using that as an image, and he says, through the blood of Christ, that wall is torn down. So now both of these groups uh, are united into one man and they are reconciled with God the Father. And through Christ, both Jew and Gentile have access by one spirit to the Father. And then, verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Paul says here in verse 20 that the church is like a building. It's built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets and the cornerstone being Jesus Christ. And then he continues, verse 20, 21 in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is fundamental teaching in Ephesians about the church. Paul describes the church as a temple where God himself takes up residence. Uh, that's a great, it's, it's an important statement. Uh, we'll come back to that in a moment. For now, just keep in mind that Paul's described, uh, Paul describes his church as a temple. That is the place where God has his dwelling. We, the church, have been built together into a dwelling place by God. Or rather, for God, by the Spirit. Then Paul continues in the first verse of the third chapter. He says, for this reason. So he connects to the same thought that he began in chapter 2, verse 11, about God's temple. For this reason, because we, we the church, are being built together into a temple where God dwells. It's for that reason he bows his knees before the, to pray before the Father. Uh, and then he deviates in the first verse of chapter 3. He realized probably that he spoke about himself as a prisoner and he doesn't want to discourage them. So he goes into a little detour to address, to, to address this question a little bit. Uh, so chapter 3, verses 2 through 13, there are a type of parenthesis in relation to how Paul's reasoning otherwise flows. And then in verse 14, he again picks up where he left off using the exact same words he used before and says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So this phrase that we have in verse 14, for this reason, it points back to the last uh, verses in chapter 2, where he speaks about the church at, as God's dwelling. It's for that reason Paul bows his knees and prays to the Father everything that he prays in verses 14 to 19. So as you can see, it's still that same temple theme that runs through the prayer that we are now at the end of. So when he speaks about the church being filled with all the fullness of God, 
It is in that context we are uh, to, to understand what he's saying. The church, the church, which is God's temple, is that which is being filled with all the fullness of God. And you know, looking at the Old Testament, we cannot stress, stress enough the importance of the, old, uh, of the temple. It was in the temple that God's Shekinah glory dwelled. It was in the temple he met with his people. You remember when they built the temple, many sacrifices were offered. Um, King Solomon prayed his prayer of consecration and fire fell from heaven and the cloud of God's glory filled the temple so the priests could not stay there to minister. And after that, the temple was the place where God met with his people and where his glory was present in a special way. And you remember in the Old Testament how important it was to worship God in the right way. You remember Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, they offered strange fire before the Lord, a fire that the Lord had not commanded. So they kind of worshiped at a whim. And as a consequence, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them both, killed them. This is Leviticus 3. Uh, it's not. Leviticus 10, isn't it? I wrote, I took the wrong notes. Uh, and, and you remember Asa, Asa, this probably pious man who, uh, I, well, I don't know about his spiritual state. I, uh, who am I? You know, the oxen stumbled. They, they carried the, the ark. Uh, and the oxen stumbled. And he stretched out his hand. And he touched the ark to steady it. And he fell down dead. Because he didn't want the ark to fall off the cart. And then, friends, in the New Testament, we see Ananias and Sapphira. They lied about how much they gave to the church, which led to both of their deaths. We see, friends, that God's glory is still a consuming fire, but it's not in a temple anymore. It's in God's church when Solomon consecrated the temple and the fire fell, people fled out of fear because of the glory of God. In the book of Acts, we learn that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard about the judgment on Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira. And no one dared to join them, it says. This is Acts 5, 11. It's the same fear. In the Old Testament, we see a pillar of fire over the tabernacle. When the temple was dedicated, fire came down from heaven. In the New Testament, on the day of Pentecost, we, re we read about tongues of fire resting over the church. Friends, these things are there for a reason. Luke is communicating. He's teaching us something. In the Old Testament, we read about how the ground shook when, when Isaiah, Isaiah he saw Christ in the temple. In the New Testament, when Christ hung on the cross, the ground also shook and the veil in the temple was torn in two from top uh, to bottom. And moreover, in Acts, the ground shook when the Spirit came, when the church prayed. We need to get a grip 
on these illustrations at the end of uh, Ephesians 2, a monumental change has taken place where God does no longer meet with his people in a temple, in a house of wood and stone, but he meets his people in, in a temple of living stones, friends. It's the same God, but his glory now abides in the church. We together are living stones that are joined together, and together we constitute the temple wherein God himself dwells. It's that big. It, this, is, this is what Paul says that the church is. The church has replaced the Old Testament temple. No temple is any, any longer needed. We together are the temple. God's glory dwells in our midst. Jesus said in John 14, 23, if any, anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And, and friends, don't misunderstand me. God is everywhere. Even when Solomon spoke about the temple, he said, the highest heaven cannot contain him. Who am I to build a house for him? Nothing can contain God. Uh, when we say that God dwells somewhere, we mean that there's a place where God's glory and presence are manifested in a special way. This is where he meets his people. Obviously, the temple was not the only place where God met his people. And the church is not the only place where God meets uh, his people. But the point is this, when we think about what it means to be filled with all the fullness of God, we must see that that, that is temple language. And therefore, it's church language. When we speak of the temple, uh, we mean that of all the places in the world, there's one place that is unique when it comes to the manifested presence of God. Paul's message is crystal clear. Uh, the function that the temple had in the Old Testament is what we now see in God's church. And just one more thing before we move on. When we speak about the church as God's temple, we, we just need to note that it kills religious individualism. Both the apostles, Paul and Peter, uh, talks about the church as stones that are joined together to be a temple of God's dwelling, it means more, but it can never mean less than that a prerequisite for the Christian life is that one is joined with other Christians in a local church. It is us together, together, we in fellowship that are being filled with the fullness of God. A building stone that's not joined to other building stones it has no function. It just, came, again, comes back in Ephesians, the third chapter, in Paul's prayer that I just read to you. Uh, we should comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. This is something we do together with all the saints. This is not an individual exercise. It's something that happens in the fellowship of the local church. This is, it's together that we see, that we understand the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So in order for us to understand what Paul means uh, when he prays that we are being filled with all the fullness of God, we must first understand that he's speaking in temple terminology. 
temple terminology. Exactly as the Old Testament, not exactly. Similar, parallel to how the Old Testament temple was filled with the glory of God. The New Testament has the church that is filled with the fullness of God. And may God grant our hearts to tremble before such a thought. May he give us an expectation and enlighten our spiritual eyes to see the church's high and its central position in the plan of God. There's something truly awesome, something reverential, something fantastic about a biblical church because God's glory abides there. There's so much more to be said, but at least that that's huge. Uh, the church is not a support group for people with spiritual interests. Uh, it's, not, it's something much, much greater, friends. Point number two. Through Christ. Through Christ. The second clue in understanding Paul's words about being filled with all the fullness of God it's its clear connection to Jesus Christ. It is in him and through him that this filling happens. I'm so thankful that we read Colossians 2 earlier in the service. Listen again to Colossians 2. Uh, and flip over there if you have your Bible. Uh, verse 9. Colossians 2 verse 9. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I read it again. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Okay. Paul, same author, he approaches the same theme, the same thing, but from a slightly different, different angle. And it sheds light on what he said earlier in the chapter um, to Ephesians. First, he underlines Christ. He emphasizes Christ's, that he says that fullness of deity dwells in Christ bodily. That is to say that Jesus is God, friends. The same substance as the Father. And then Paul continues by saying, in him, in Christ, you have been filled. He doesn't explicitly say that we are filled with God's fullness, but it sheds light on the passage in Ephesians. Paul observes that we are filled with God's fullness, that's Ephesians, but it's never separate from Christ. It is in him that all of God's fullness dwells. And it's through him that we are filled. It's always in him. He's the vine. We are the branches. The life we receive, we get from him. So whatever it means to be filled with the fullness of God, we know that it comes in and through our union with Christ. And as we saw before, it comes from getting to know his love, which Paul has just spoken of in the same verse. Uh, that we're looking at right now in Ephesians. He prayed that we should know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. So let's think about Christ's love for a second. Paul speaks about the breath of Christ's love. 
How wide is it? How wide is the love of Christ? Have you thought about that? It's wide enough that it includes us, uncircumcised Gentiles. And we, were, we who were bitter enemies towards God. And we see in Revelation how Christ has ransomed a people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. And how these stand before the throne with a loud voice praising God and the Lamb. It's that wide. All peoples. Paul speaks about the length of Christ's love. How long is Christ's love? Friends, it's infinite. It's infinite. It stretches from eternity to eternity. God shows us before the foundation of the world was laid. Revelation 13.8, 17.8 says that our names are written in the book of life that belongs to the Lamb before the foundations of the world. Christ has known me. And if you are in him, he has known you throughout all eternity. All eternity. He loves you with an eternal love. He wrote your name in the book of life before the creation of universe. Before, before there were atoms, your name was written. It begins in God's eternal being. It manifests itself in time. And it continues in all eternity. Because Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Friends, Paul speaks about the depth of Christ's love. How deep is it? Philippians 2.6 says that though he was in the form of God, that is the Son of God, in, in the bosom of the Father for all eternity... He did not count equality with God as a thing to grasp and hang on, hang on to for advantage, but he humbled himself. He disrobed himself of these signs, eternal glory, and he took upon himself the form of a servant in a world filled with hate, sin, and shame. He suffered for our sake. He was misunderstood, hated, mocked, despised. He suffered hunger, thirst, exhaustion. He was arrested. He was slandered. He was abused, tortured, desecrated. He reeled and he stumbled under the weight of his cross on his way to Golgotha. He was nailed to that cross and hanging there, he gasped for breath. He bore God's wrath for our sins. He drank the last drop of God's wrath. The Father turned his face away and drove him out into darkness where he at last gave up his spirit. He, the Prince of Peace, he, the beginning of all good things, he died and was buried why did he do all that? The eternal and the astounding answer is he did it out of love for his church, for his people. He did it for you and me. That's the depth of his love. And besides that, we see the depth of his love in, in a different light uh, when we're reminded that there's nothing in us that justifies a love like that. 
Nothing. We, we are all as though who have gone astray. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In our natural state, we are completely without hope. In Ephesians 2, Paul states, we are dead. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Without hope, without God in the world. Romans 5.10, he writes that Christ died for us. Not only when we were sinners, but we, when we were his enemies. His enemies. That's the depth of his love. He abandoned his glorified position, descended down into darkest depth, and rose again for those who were his enemies. Paul speaks about the height of Christ's love. Christ's love is not only about having our sins forgiven. That's marvelous. But it's not just that. He gives us new life. He makes us joint heirs with Christ himself. To be united to him by faith, it means that all that belongs to Christ also belongs to us. The love with which the Father has loved him throughout all eternity. The same love Jesus Christ now shares with us. We are to enjoy the same love that he himself have enjoyed forever. He presents us in glory without spot or wrinkle. Beloved friends, when these different dimensions of Christ's love is a living reality in our church, something fundamental happens. It changes everything. It changes everything. It, we can be experts in all kinds of things, but everything stands and falls with a living knowledge of Christ's love. When we, as a church, have our highest satisfaction in Christ, when our greatest interest is to know more of him, when our posture is to give him honor for all that he has done for us, well, there are no limits to the joy we can experience here and now. Colossians states that it is in him we are being filled. Paul says in Ephesians 3.19 that we might know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. So if we are to see God's fullness, well, then we are to seek Christ. Christ. Let's never seek God for the blessings he can give us. No, let's seek God as to receive God for whom he is in himself. All right, so our first point was about when we want to understand what it is to be filled with all the fullness of God, we must see that it's language, uh, it's a context that, that revolves around the temple. It's something that God gives his church as a whole. The second point was that it, it is in Christ, it's through Christ that this filling happens. So now, as we conclude, let's just take these two things, these two clues, if you will, and, and apply them into our lives. Uh, let's keep, firstly then, let's keep building into one another as a church, investing in one another, confiding in one another, encouraging one another, comforting one another, teaching one another, loving one another, bearing with one another. Let us be reminded that is as we are being built together, 
that we are the temple that is filled with all God's fullness. Which means that if you are not in a meaningful way being built into a biblical Christian local church, you're missing out. You're missing out on the very purpose of being a Christian. It's not something peripheral, friends. This is, this is, this is what it's about. The Christian life is a life that's lived out in covenantal fellowship with a specific group of brothers and sisters in Christ. I know it's messy. I know that very well. But that's the way God has chosen. It's his way. He chose for himself a people that his manifold wisdom may be known. Ephesians 3.10. Secondly, let us as individuals and as a church give ourselves entirely to Christ. Let's seek him. Let's trust him. Let's devote ourselves to him. Let us treasure him. Rejoice in him. He is the lamb that was slain for our sins. He is the rock that was stricken and gave life-giving water. He's life. He's light in the darkness. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and for the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and he, and he sustains. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He delivers the captive. His life, dear friends, is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His grace is sufficient. His love never changes. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Oh, he is the way. He's the truth. He's our life, friends. He's our righteousness. He's our only hope in life and in death. He's everything. Do you know this? Do you know him? Outside of him is hell, hopelessness, and despair. In him, united to him through faith, is all of God's fullness. It's life. It's everlasting joy. So friends, let's cling to him with everything that we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this sweet promise of being filled with all your fullness. And I pray now that these two clues would be helpful for us as we are trying to grasp the greatness of this reality. We pray for your blessing upon this church. And we pray that you would continue to work in our hearts so that we may live our lives to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.